0: Welcome to the Greenhouse Effect. Our hope is that this podcast would be like a greenhouse to help you get unstuck and grow in your full potential because life ought to be fully lived. Welcome back, everybody, to the Greenhouse Effect podcast I am really excited about today's guest. Gretchen is not only a friend, but has a really interesting background and and career path that we're going to get into today. She's kind of a career lifer uh, for over 25 years where she worked in new product development and innovation at Herman Miller. And if you don't know Herman Miller, you've probably seen their furniture many times Even if you didn't notice, because they're often in movies or commercials, but she was really privileged to work on, you know, some of the most impactful creative strategies, including the development of their original iconic Aaron chair, which is definitely a chair that you've seen before many times. So Gretchen had a position in R&D leadership and worked on lots of interesting things that we'll dive into today. She recently left as part of an early buyout to broaden the playing field and is still in the first kind of early months of this kind of post-company lifer life where she's figuring out what's next and what's her path forward. And she's doing some advising to startups and checking into consulting opportunities and other things. So we're really excited to have you on the show today, Gretchen, and to dive into some of your story, not just your experiences, but what you're thinking about for the future. So welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much, Steve. Glad to be
0: here. Another interesting fact about you, and I knew this about you, but I didn't know the full extent. (laughs) So you informed me that not only are you a diehard Chicago Cubs fan, but you are actually a scorekeeper and maybe even a record holder for the number of foul balls that you've brought home.
1: Yes, uh, that's uh, that's been some of the speculation as I reach out to friends and whatnot with uh, with each new foul ball that I bring home. They, uh, they, there's this strong belief that it's got to be a record, though I don't know if foul ball records are actually kept. So um, I don't I don't mind assuming that it is.
0: How many How many foul balls do you have?
1: I have eighteen.
0: Oh my gosh. That's incredible. So how'd you become a Cubs fan?
1: You know, um, people ask me if it's a generational thing and it isn't the way that it is in some families, but I can remember uh, coming home from grade school and uh, my grandparents would absolutely be tuned in, in one case on the radio, in one case on the television Uh, with the Cubs games in the late 70s, early 80s, when they were certainly uh, not performing very well as a team. So, you know, I can recall that as the initial spark, but when I was nine years old, I went to my first game, and it was a life-transforming experience. I'd never Hmm. been anywhere as stimulating frankly as Wrigley Field was that summer afternoon. <laughs> so that was <laughs> that was definitely the foothold.
0: Wow. What about that kind of crowd environment gives you energy?
1: Um you know it's it's kind of a funny question because I'm an introvert by way of Myers Briggs definition. You know, I I gain the energy from myself and less from the crowd. But it's more that, um, you know, in pivotal moments in a game yet today when the Wrigley crowd stands up um, and I'm a part of that. It's like, yep, I'm I'm there for my team, (laughs) doing everything I can to help them.
0: That's so fun. I grew up in an area that didn't really have a pro sports team, so I've never had that. I have my college team you know, I'm a Michigan Wolverine and I like watching their, their games, but I, I feel like I'm almost missing something that I've never had that pro sports team to f- follow and be a fan of. <laughs> well, yeah, it's exciting to have you on. And, and I think the topic we want to cover today is around how do you get to know yourself more and, and then start to realize your full potential. And I think what's really fun about you talking about this today is you've had a really interesting journey in your career till now, but you're also in a season right now of, of getting to know yourself more and, and almost um, re- rediscovering some things. So give us a bit of the background um, <clears throat> of where have you where have you come in your career and what have been some of the experiences that shaped uh, where you're at today?
1: Yeah, so um, looking back on these 25 plus years, um, the, the word serendipity comes to mind, not only in the far distance past, but um, what's been playing out over the course of these last few months. So, you know, if I dial back to even when I was an undergraduate studying industrial design, that was the first time I was formally introduced to the Herman Miller name, uh, the brand name, both by way of design history class, as well as field trips to the Chicago showroom. And um, it was a couple months after graduation that I was um, innocently sitting at my parents' home on a Monday morning. um, Frankly, when I was ready to pick up the phone and and call my last boss from the summer before because the country was in a recession at that point in time. And yes, I pursued a few interviews and, and whatnot, but wasn't getting any traction. It was like, I need some cash flow. I better go <laughs> and call BJ again. And literally that morning uh, when I was planning on placing a call, a call came in to me and it was my senior studio professor um of industrial design from the university of illinois and Hmm. he called and he had one question for me after we got back beyond the pleasantries and that was gretchen do you have a job yet (laughs) and um a part of me can still recall thinking hmm, David, would I be answering this wall phone at my parents' home on a Monday morning at 10 o'clock if I had a job? <laughs> um, I, there was a really smart alec answer <laughs> flowing through my head, but I left that yeah. no, I don't. Um, but David, in addition to his teaching, was a design consultant for Herman Miller. He had a project going on with them at least throughout um, the full senior year that I had him as a professor. He had just come back from one of his quarterly project reviews with the company up in Michigan. And knowing his teaching connection, uh, the research group had asked him if he had any students that he might recommend for Uh, a research internship that they had opening up Hmm. and he he was calling to in addition ask me the question if I had a job Uh, once I said no he's like I gave them one name and that was mine so that's that's certainly serendipity number one
0: um, in the course of
1: my career Um, I gained an early foothold it was a few months into my tenure as an intern you know doing the lowly tasks like sorting the mail and printing <laughs> printing posters for uh, presentations and whatnot, that the program that became the Aaron Chair was officially kicked off inside Herman Miller. And man, uh, as accustomed as we are now all these years later to its aesthetic, it was very foreign and um, in some cases off-putting. Certainly shocking is the word that comes to mind. Um, I heard the story that the first time the CEO, uh, the new CEO at the time, and chairman of the board saw the chair, um, they asked, you know, when's it going to be finished? In other words, when are you going to put foam and fabric on the seat and backrest? And they were (laughs) told, no, this is the direction that it's going. None of that. Instead, this breathable membrane Um, suspension material anyway um, it was a few months into my tenure that that program was kicked off and the the project mandate required all sorts of research because the company leadership said because of these strange and off-putting aesthetics and aesthetics being one of the reasons that people buy chairs Hmm. um, gosh we're really concerned that no one (laughs) will buy it for that reason it needs to therefore really hit it out of the park with regard to another reason that people buy chairs which is comfort. So one of the things that I worked on intensely for months and frankly a couple of years in the end with your father-in-law, Steve, was um, you know what is what is the comfort level of this chair and what is it compared to the competition because we need to eclipse those for this to even become a reality. Interesting. So just being in the right time, to- right place at the right time was serendipity, uh, point number two. Um, and I would say the, the early third one that I'll wrap up with was then, again, based on that um, embeddedness in the project and deep familiarity with um, what Aaron was becoming. Um, from a marketing and product category standpoint, there was a new leader on that side of the business, and he was seeking to form a young, dynamic team to be based in Chicago um, to be closer to the customers and closer to the competition. And as soon as the then research lead heard about these plans uh, directly from Andy, um, David came to me and said, guess what? I immediately thought of you. Not only the Chicago connection, not only the seating focus, um, but more specifically the Aaron side of things. And you know what? I ended up getting that job, and that's been 26 years ago since I was officially hired in, and that was pure serendipity as well. Um, So, so, you know, I can remember sitting in that interview and hearing... (laughs) hearing from Andy, Gretchen, you're in a career building mode. And that sentence has stuck with me all these years. So it was extremely fun to circle back with him um, earlier this summer. And in the process of working with vastly different tools than were available, then, you know, being able to queue up um, my port- my digital portfolio on my iPad and, and replay that sentence to him and say, Andy, this is what that career has built so far. Hmm. Um, extremely rewarding.
0: That's so, so fun. It's always fun when you know someone and you know parts of their story, but you haven't heard how it all kind of came together and fits together. But yeah. I have to pause because something that was really interesting for me, you mentioned my father-in-law who you worked with, And that's how I first came to know the company Herman Miller. And, you know, coming from a background where furniture wasn't necessarily like a topic in our house, (laughs) um, I was always a little confused. I was like furniture, that just, it just appears like furniture is just there. You don't, you don't talk about it or, or there's not a company making it. It just shows up. And so, um, It took me a while to figure out like, oh, this isn't an entire industry where there's a lot of thought and intentionality put into it. So for anyone who um, can relate with me, you know, I'll be humble and admit that was a total eye opener to me. Can you explain what is Herman Miller? Why? Why was something like the Aaron chair so iconic? And I'm sure some people right now are Googling the image (laughs) A-E-R-O-N because people will recognize it, but they might not have ever thought like, oh, yeah, there's an actual company with designers and people trying to uh, make something that's really great. What made what makes something like that so iconic? And and what exactly is this Herman Miller we're speaking about?
1: <laughs> yeah, so let me try to sort through all that. Um, so Herman Miller is a global innovation company, based in West Michigan and it's a geography that is actually home to a lot of other companies as well in terms of the commercial furniture industry that's been true for um, in some cases about 100 years which is approximately how old Herman Miller is as an organization Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. just the whole tie to the geography is a function of three things that, again, I, I guess the word serendipity comes to mind um, in terms of explaining it. There used to be a time when furniture was almost exclusively made of wood, and so the abundance of timber that was available um, upstate in Michigan was the first factor. That Secondly, there were European craftspeople who had emigrated to the West Michigan geography, And then third, there's the Grand River that flows through Grand Rapids that was the source of power to, um, you know, operate the plants and whatnot. So those three things together um, helped Herman Miller and other companies gain a foothold, um, again, about a century ago. Wow. But it was in the 1930s in the midst of the broader uh, Great Depression, that um, the company founder, DJ Dupree, was looking at empty uh, empty order sheets. And there was a designer that um, approached DJ and said, well, really appealed to his uh, moral principles and basically said, the furniture that you guys are making right now, you're essentially copying. And that's morally wrong. Hmm. I can help you as a product designer um, create designs that will not be copies. They will be original. And so in that regard, he was catching DJ's attention to be moral. Um, But DJ's like, well, that sounds good, certainly, but I can't possibly pay you. (laughs) Um, And the designer said, don't worry, you pay me after things are sold. So it was the first royalty agreement Um, frankly in the industry and probably others and it really ushered in a momentous change for the company to move from really period reproductions to what we would now classify approaching mid century modern furniture and yes that obviously took more of a foothold um after World War II with new materials and methodologies being introduced and frankly, um, frankly, some of it was also the scale of homes with people um, moving into urban environments, again, partly because of the recession, but um, just the explosion of of population as well that fed the need for smaller pieces as well, which was part of the value proposition there. So, So you might Recognize, um, in fact, several designs in the furniture realm from Herman Miller. Hmm. There's been um, a history of pioneering um, within the within the company's history. Again, dating back to some of those conversations I was just describing, um, some of the adoption of. Uh, For example, materials and processes like bent plywood that were originally developed by Charles and Ray Eames for the war effort and transferring those into furniture designs that are um, really now quite widely recognized, celebrated in permanent collections of museums around the globe and probably in, in homes like mine today. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. It is fun. The more I've learned over time. um, And we have also a lot of uh, Herman Miller furniture in our home is there really is kind of a fan, a fan base and a real tribe who just loves and follows this stuff. But I've even become a fan of Herman Miller in terms of some of those early leaders you mentioned, uh, we're very intentional around company culture and leadership development. And, you know, there's books like I think we've recommended on this podcast, Leadership is an Art by Max Dupree. And that, you know, such a, a quality book around culture and leadership. But it also introduced ideas early on that are now really popular. And you wouldn't have guessed that they were being talked about that far back. So it's kind of been interesting to me that I've, I've also found there's a following in in our world of kind of company culture, leadership, personal development from the same company. (laughs) For sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah. um, I I was very deliberate a few minutes ago when starting to talk about Herman Miller um, and not referring to it as a furniture company, but Mm -hmm. as an innovation company, because yes. um, Well, there was, there was a marketing um, line that I remember from a few years ago, probably more than a few, um, but the line was something to the effect of, "What comes out of the delivery truck is furniture, but what's gone into the truck is an amalgamation of everything that we believe in." And it's design, it's research, it's innovation, it's sustainability, it is employee ownership, and and some of that um, solid leadership as you described. So hmm. I always like that line.
0: Yeah, it's it's just interesting you know, in my world, you hear Apple so many times a day is, is a reference point. But long before Apple was kind of having a design first approach, I was surprised to learn that Herman Miller really took that approach of we're not just trying to cut cost and increase bottom line. We're starting with a design that has purpose and meaning and quality, and then everything else comes after that. And that, I mean, that's a risky approach for a business to take, but Obviously, they've been very profitable. So, there's just so many lessons I've I've been inspired by from this. Yeah, this approach to innovation.
1: Yeah, I think I think the overall header that applies is research based problem solving design. And if you let me go down a rabbit hole, I'll, I'll share some interesting early history that a lot of folks don't know about the Aaron chair. So, there was a a phase in the mid. 80s where the company was and this is before my time so um, <laughs> any any Herman Miller uh, real veterans out there that are listening to this and if I get any of the details wrong it's um, it's uh, it's innocence on my part and apologies in advance <laughs> but um, there was a, a phase of time where the Herman Miller Research Corporation which was one of the divisions of Herman Miller was was looking at diversifying the business into, um, living environments for the, the elderly to help um, basically aging in place as we know it right now. Huh. And and this was a, a multi-year um, research design and, and exploration project. Um, and, you know, different designers were working on different elements within that working space. And two of the chair designers bill stump and don Chadwick were in fact focused on a chair so think in terms of something large (laughs) and comfortable and and um to a degree cushy at first um but it was recognized that as your mobility decreases due to physical limitations people tend to stay in one place and guess what they need to um make sure that they have some assistance with the process of entry and egress in that chair, as well as, um, you know, concerns about pressure sores and um, whatnot from from sitting for so long. So they were actually designing a chair, um, again, with this human-centered focus to be the center of this entire living environment. And it was a multi-year project, as I said earlier, but Um, In the end, it was decided that the the project needed to be killed solely because Herman Miller didn't have the distribution channel that was required. And so, you know, we shelved it as as an active project, but Bill and Don recognized something there. And so they continued on in a skunkworks mode for several more years, (laughs) really independent of any funding from the organization. But they saw you know, things happening in the world around them as, for example, the PC started to gain a foothold. And then in the environment where Herman Miller did have a primary channel of distribution, i.e. the workplace, people were now becoming more sedentary, not because of physical decline, but technological advances. And so they took everything that they had (laughs) learned in terms of kinematics and suspension and, and, and that had gone into the other application of, of this other chair and morphed it into what became, what eventually became Aaron. And it's what was unveiled then to the CEO and chairman of the board, (laughs) as I had described earlier as being this very foreign object. So
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah, so f- things like the mesh which is so popular now were not a thing then and even the shape of it like a lot of, a lot of features about it were really new and unseen at the time.
1: Absolutely. And difficult problems to solve, but if I go back to your mention Steve earlier in the tee up of just there's that's risky business if you will. Um, For sure. I mean, if from an engineering standpoint, that mesh that we call pellicle hadn't been secured the way it actually is, um, the chair would falter, the chair would not live up to the warranty, and it certainly wouldn't deliver the comfort that it does. So that was that was a big, momentous Hmm. effort. And you know, a lot of lot of anxiety around that at first. Even even when the chair was first introduced, not so much from the performance side of things, although I'm sure uh, looking back on it, there was a little bit of that. But back to the aesthetic side of things, when we were in the trade show booth and these curtains opened, we actually had an errand chair in there with a cushion on the seat and back because um, that was the fallback. The really cool thing is that was the only one that was ever built. There was never the demand.
0: I love that, that behind the scenes. You guys were so brave, but not 100%. There's 1% held back. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Well, I want to switch and focus on you a little bit because I think you're in such an interesting season of introspection. And something I noticed from your story is you have so much rich experience at not only an iconic kind of brand and company, but in experiences and leadership, like we mentioned, organizational culture, human-centered design, which is high demand and such a kind of new topic for people now, but it's not a new idea. And, and overall, I guess product innovation, again, such a highly talked about topic now and in such high demand, you've been doing this for years and years, so... Give me a sense of what you're thinking about now as you're transitioning from such a rich history in all of that experience and in one in- industry, one culture to, you know, whatever you're doing next.
1: Yeah. So um, I would say, you know, in full transparency, my my transition um, probably started to to head in this direction. A few years ago, you know, um, just based on again our, our deep discussion about chairs, as an industrial designer, I know, having spoken with um, other industrial designers from around the globe, that um, again because of the the recognition um, associated with the Herman Miller brand and the pioneering. Activities over decades tied to seating. That there are industrial designers that would nearly kill <laughs> to have their name forever associated with a Herman Miller chair. Hmm. Um, and just because of the the projects, those um, you know creative projects and impactful strategies we touched on earlier in the introduction. My name is forever linked with about fourteen and. In time, a 15th chair um, will be linked with my name, which is extremely awesome. At the same time, I can remember about three years ago when I got assigned to lead that development project of the last chair for a period of time. And as innovative as it is, I frankly recall my reaction being, oh, another chair.
0: Huh. Yeah.
1: um, So... I'm a Sagittarius and one of our qualities is adventuresome. Yeah. <laughs> and so doing, doing chair number 15 was not as exciting as even chair eight or 10 or certainly number one was. So I would say, you know, that was that was some of the early traction to, hey, let's work on whatever may be next. You know, if I build again off of the notion that we've been chatting about with furniture, I've never, and this is true of a lot of my former colleagues as well, it's not just furniture, but we were together creating extraordinary experiences for sitters or other users of the furniture. Um, and there's a there's a phrase that um, builds on this notion of extraordinary experiences and And I would say that's part of what I want to do at a super high level. I want to help create new addition, new extraordinary experiences in all sorts of realms beyond furniture. There's a phrase that I was introduced to again by Bill Stumpf, um, advancing the arts of daily living. So yes, in the case of chairs, making people more comfortable, um, more broadly, making them more productive Hmm removing pain points um, literal as well as physical and just helping them enjoy their lives a little bit more. So yeah, you know, as I, as I move forward with my professional collateral like portfolio and whatnot, I am talking about advancing the arts of daily living because you know what, there's a lot in our world right now that is, um, is far from, (laughs) far from a good experience, let alone an extraordinary experience. And I'd like to help (laughs) tackle some of those.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember one time I was the lucky recipient of, um, one of, I think you were doing a test where you sent out to some people a challenge to, to send you different pain points we experience in our day related to kind of the design and ergonomics of different daily, um, like items and experiences in our daily life. And I remember that being really fun, kind of walking around and having having kind of my notepad out, hypothetically speaking, for all the different things you do during the day that you don't even think about because they're so normal. But then you start noticing ways where it's not working as well or where there's opportunity for improvement. And, yes. um, you know, that was more, I was thinking of it more in terms of physical items. But what I hear you saying is there's uh, there's even so much more beyond that in terms of, um yeah, the art of daily living, all the different things that that could be improved, things like environment that yeah. we can just take for granted and and not realize how much how much we could really work on or, or make big improvements.
1: Yeah. I mean there's an example that um landed on my plate in my day last week Friday. So I was attending an event at um a university campus that I have never been to previously. Uh, Looking back on it, I'm super grateful that it wasn't a campus as large as your University of Michigan, Steve, because looking back at the emails that I had um, received as part of confirmation of my attendance and then with instructions of where to park that day, there was no mention of exactly where the conference itself was going to be. <laughs> so, you yes. know, there was, there was this aerial view of the campus that, I don't know, let's say it's maybe 12 or 15 buildings in total. It had the parking garage circled. Okay, found my way there, no problem. <laughs> um, parked the car, got out, and, you know, there's really only – one exit to the garage to the far left or the other one that I chose to the far right. I went to the one closest to me, but as soon as I was out of that structure, I'm like, where do I go? So I went into the first building. Um, as I recall, it said the learning center. I'm like, well, that makes sense. If it's, if it's an external (laughs) learning event, maybe it's held in here. I quickly found that there were two others who were, um, Due to attend, but equally lost as I was, and you know, we're scrolling through our mobile devices trying to find anything. Yeah, um, I I had the mobile number of a, a resource that I thought she's going to know where it is, but I'm not sure if she's going to be checking her texts because, frankly, she's going to be um, on the podium here pretty soon.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Fortunately, there was a good Samaritan who s- saw these three lost souls wandering through the building he works in, spoke with us briefly. He's like, oh yeah, I think that group is in the next building. And he, he took us there. So out the one building, through a small courtyard, into the second building, and let's say 100 feet into its lobby before there was the elevator bank. And it was only opposite the elevators that we first saw the first signage of any sort advertising the event. And that was pointing us up to the fourth floor. It's like, wow i needed to move that sign back to frankly the parking garage
0: right but up until that point no one on that kind of production team had walked through the same experience you had to go through so of course they didn't know that like when they wouldn't have noticed all those little things if they hadn't kind exactly. of rehearsed it the way you'd have to so go you
1: know you know it's coincidental that it was friday the 13th but it was a pretty (laughs) lousy day to my friday the 13th and and yet there was a quick recovery and a simple solution um you know just stepping back um i I think would be a a really good thing and and you know what that's that's also tying into uh, where i've started with my pivot um i have said yes to helping a couple of startups and yes they're in the furniture world as a bit of a baby step but um you know i uh, was able to see their prototype a week ago wednesday and just walking in and experiencing it um it's it's in the realm of what we call enclosures now so think of phone booths a little bit larger in scale than a human being and it was you know not five minutes into reviewing this prototype that i was grabbing a step stool to see what was going on up top and (laughs) my first question my first question tied back to a recommendation i had made to them last fall when i saw their prototype and just the direction that they had at the time um attached the the top frame to the side frame and I'm like why why are the bolts going up into the structure as opposed to down (laughs) first of all if they go down you won't see the unsightliness of the screw heads themselves secondly you're going to use gravity to your advantage and they're like you know hitting their forehead um, (laughs) like that's so obvious but you know you, you get into things so closely at times so You know, that's where that's where a fresh set of eyes comes into play.
0: So something that's interesting to me is you have this rich background in design and I would even call it intentional design. And, you know, some of the phrases you used around research based problem solving design. So I'm guessing now as you're entering into this season of transition and what's next and self-discovery and realizing more of your potential, I would guess that you're using some of those design skills in the way that you go through this transition. So, I think so many of our listeners are in a in a introspective mode or thinking about their potential or their future path, and it might be helpful to just hear how are you approaching this, how are you thinking about it, or what what are you actually doing to work through this transition?
1: Sure. So um, yeah, one of the one of the little aha's over the course of these last few months has been, I very much am my my biggest design problem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It, That's a book right and, there, by the way. <laughs> there you
1: go. And some of it is, you know, in the design process, you go through this very very um, we call it the fuzzy front end um, because it's so unclear. Um, but it's also labeled as discovery and definition. And I would say, you know, I, I've progressed uh, through that by way of, yes, yeah, circling back with people who know me well, um, some of those mentors and colleagues from years ago, and just not necessarily expressing a vulnerability, but asking for help, <laughs> you know, Again, what what do you what do you recognize? What stands out? Um, and then the exploration phase is um, where things progress in, in the design process. And so, some of the exploration has been um, getting to know new circles. Um, so, a group of cohorts that I'm working with. Um, as organized by a team out of New York of, yes, people who are um, coincidentally in most cases um, a similar age as me, um, all from creative fields, but different sorts of creative fields and approaching their own pivot. You know, we're able to play off of one another's experiences and um, rehearse our, our elevator pitches and critique those and um, various case studies that we have at the ready for examples of x y or z Hmm. Um, and then just spending a lot of time networking and yes a lot of those folks are in my existing LinkedIn circle and whatnot but um, also opening the door to hey you know now that you've heard my story or, or heard the way I'm painting it today, you know, are there connections that you suggest? So, um, yeah, there was a fellow that I've been in contact with this week and he recommended, um, a coffee talk group that he meets with on a weekly basis on different topics. And yes, I met 12 new people just yesterday. Mm. Um, the conference that, um, that had the signage, (laughs) signage issue. Um, once I got in there, there were other, other people that I was able to meet and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm advancing again. Some of it is just talking things through. And again, I mentioned earlier that the notion of the extraordinary experiences, um, again, that's come by way of conversation with others. Um, and, again just making sure that I'm thinking about it which you know at face value is difficult for others to to see because it doesn't necessarily look like you're doing anything When in <laughs> fact I'm as busy these last few months as I have been at any point in my w-2 life oh um, totally
0: and so it's
1: like yeah, <laughs> how did I get anything done uh-huh. when I was holding down a full-time job?
0: Oh, uh, I can relate to that, and I love that. It, it sounds to me like you're using a lot of those research muscles in the way you're you're going about this pivot. Because I've known a lot of people who they feel like, well, I just need to kind of be in my own head and just think about it hard enough till I figure out my path and. And what I hear you doing a lot of is getting feedback from people and doing that research among people who know you or who are in similar veins. And then maybe what they say isn't some precise answer, but it sparks other ideas or connections for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, uh, if I go back to serendipity, Last week, last weekend, I had a friend in, and this is a friend, his name is Ken, that I went through undergrad with, and um, we've had a, we've had a 30-year friendship, so he's seen me all along my professional journey, and yet from a distance, never worked on projects with him, Um, but I took him through my portfolio that I had worked on, put a lot of hours in on over the course of the summer in the process of, A, I didn't have one for the longest time. B, I had to go through a lot of deep thought there in terms of what can I include from an intellectual property standpoint? What should I include? And even once I settled on what should I include, what are the best ways to illustrate that in words and mm. pictures? And, you know, had to, frankly, have a few ancient slides digitized. Yeah. Or track down other images and then laying out the pages and what's the flow from one project to the next. And another cohort had suggested, including some transition slides, um, to introduce those projects. And, you know, it was it was a task, but it was a labor of love as well. So I was taking Ken through my portfolio and his feedback was echoing what I'd heard from others who I'd shared the portfolio with in terms of, you know, amazing, impressive content um, from a graphic design beautifully laid out. Um, but then in the course of just our, our visit, I pulled up for Ken my uh the one page baseball only (laughs) resume that I had created for myself earlier this summer um, for no other reason than to help learn some of the new technology I had invested in. And Ken stepped back and said, that's what I want you to do. I want you to create the professional version of this one pager so that you can communicate, not just, your projects, because I heard you want to pivot away from explicitly furniture, and yet all the projects you can include in that portfolio right now are furniture-focused. So Ken's challenge was put together a one-pager that speaks to your skills um, and, you know, doesn't use the word furniture, doesn't explicitly mention Herman Miller or show any of the products. And so... (laughs) I'm grateful for him to have thrown out that challenge and as I sit here at my technology today a few days later yes I'm looking at a one page skills summary that is very much in keeping with my personal brand so it's got you know like my MBTI and my Clifton strengths and and my superpower listed in the foundation of this page because they are undercurrents to everything, whether it be that it played out in my professional life or my personal life. But then if I look above that on the page, there are six skills that I, I touch on and feature. And um, really, yes, there are some things captured here that I've alluded to in the course of this conversation, the different types of research that I can practice or, you know, that, you um, that tally of annual revenue my commercialized projects bring to the business but I don't mention the word or the name Herman Miller yeah and um, I I illustrate the product design and development process and at the end yes there is an illustration of a person sitting in an errand chair but it's not so much that oh I'm celebrating that as much as it really is the best example, um, because it's so well known, of what what innovation represents to me. So, um, I'm thrilled to have this additional tool in my toolbox as I go out and, yes, meet new people and try to try to get them to know the brand that is Gretchen. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm looking at it right now in front of me, and it's it reminds me of a really nice kind of infographic.
1: Bingo. That's what I was aiming for. Oh, and it's so
0: helpful because of the different sections. It grabs your eye, but it also tells a story before you even read the words.
1: Yeah, and it's going to be super helpful. I mean, yes, for the most part, I've just been talking aloud to myself (laughs) as I go from (laughs) upper left to lower right. But um, there's a really nice flow here that's going to help with my storytelling in those perhaps moments of anxiety when it is, let's say... uh, informal or especially formal interview situation. Um, but you know, another thing is, I think it opens up the door to, um, another generation that yes, I've, I've worked with, but you know, frankly, the, the person that may be in a position of hiring me is in a, is in a younger generation. And this is something that, uh, the infographic world is something that, I am stereotyping here, but uh, (laughs) I think think it resonates really well.
0: Okay, so everyone, this will be in the show notes, this kind of um, unique version of a resume that Gretchen's created. And I just think it's inspiring, but it also gives ideas for how you can communicate your personal brand, your unique value, what you're interested in and looking for, I think it's so much more engaging than a typical resume, but I'm sure like you're saying, it also helps the process of making it helped you clarify things for yourself as well.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think part of what I love about it is it's true to me, you know, I'm, I'm not a graphic designer. Um, I'm not a brand expert or a marketing person, but you know, there really are not exceptional tools here that I have leveraged. Um, it's all clip art, <laughs> <laughs> frankly, within the Apple platform, um, leveraging a few handful of photos that are from my uh, personal stash, and then one, two, three, three images that, um, in one case, again is is a piece of clip art. It just wasn't in the the keynote offering, so. Uh, but it, it's true to me and absolutely, I mean, the, the scariest part to me of executive resumes is they are executive resumes. <laughs> right. And, and it's like, I can't, I can't be true to myself and put something out there that doesn't have some element of color because that ties into design that doesn't have some negative space. And it certainly is not going to have times new roman font.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it.
1: Over the course of this summer as I'm, you know, thinking through how I'm going to how I'm going to catch the attention of a prospective employer, I'll use that broadly. You know, I've circled back with some folks that know me well, yes, my mentors, yes, my um, peers, and in some cases, direct reports, and it's just like playback the Gretchen experience from your side of things, mm. so that I can get some other hooks and and I want to give a shout out to former colleague Susan, who I asked the question, "What's my superpower?" And it's not a, not a little question by any means, but, um, you know, she, she listened to the question. We continued on with our conversation the day that I posed it for a few minutes. And then she's like, ah, I've been thinking about your question and I've got it. <laughs> and, and so her answer was, Gretchen, your superpower is marrying design thinking with systems thinking. And that really resonated for me right away. So um, I really like uh, and have been talking about uh, my superpower is design thinking coupled with systems thinking because it's true to me. um, But also, as Susan pointed out or reminded me, it's kind of a rare, rare talent.
0: But it's a really powerful step to ask people you have worked with and spent time with, you know, tell me what you saw in me. Because we, yeah. it is hard to have that clarity about ourselves, and I, I've noticed sometimes people are afraid to ask that question. They don't want to seem arrogant or put people on the spot. But I, I've found that people actually enjoy answering that question. Is how? What did you find?
1: You know, um, yes, very warm reception from all angles, um, whether it be. Again, asking an isolated question like that uh, about what's my superpower to, um, you know, what do you remember most? What would you emphasize? Um, And what's been really heartwarming um, is a lot of that warmth, a lot of the um, celebration, if you will, especially at my... Farewell gathering, you know that's what was echoed. Yes, mm-hmm. there's there's this amazing, uh, amazingly large figure that's the estimate of my career long commercialized contributions to the business in terms of annual revenue, but um, the signature intangibles of my personal brand that people experienced and evidently enjoyed uh, working with on a, on a daily basis, in many cases, again, for a lot of years. Um, it's really, really humbling in a way. Um, it's empowering and just plain good to hear, to hear the good that I try to introduce to my day-to-day is being recognized.
0: Well, is there anything else you wanted to share that we haven't hit on?
1: Steve, you know, um, I worked for all those years at a company that also was very much in alignment with my brand and that I was in alignment with. And yet, um, you know, it also was a function staying so long of extraordinary experience after extraordinary experience and you know, encountering different potential pivot points over time where, you know, that instead of leaving, the tenure continued because of additional opportunities, whether it be, you know, attending grad school and, and having my tuition taken care of by the organization um, or incredible projects landing on my plate again, travel opportunities and so forth. And, you know, suddenly you look up and um, a lifetime of a quarter century or so has passed before you know it. And um, I'm sure that to some in the listening audience, that's an absolutely foreign concept. And um, understandably so. The world is very different, but also you know, I was in a culture where that was very, very common. Um, You know, as part of the same early buyout, there are colleagues that left with 40 years of tenure, upper Mm. 30 years of (laughs) tenure. And so, you know, if you find yourself in the right place, um, because of fulfillment and otherwise, it can happen. And yet, in the course of, again, some of those exploratory conversations even a few years ago i heard very explicitly um that even when you're somewhere that is as strong a brand as herman miller maybe maybe i'm speaking of a particular example where the individual doesn't know the brand um from some of the same angles we've touched on but he's like you've been at one organization and in one industry for all those years it's it's really not appealing to us as a prospective employer that was that was a real blow <laughs> and so you know I think um, again if I go back to and close on one of my signature intangibles um, it's being positive being um, being in the proper mindset and um, being optimistic about this journey. Yes, that that response comes to mind every so often, but then again, I, I look back and say, I've got an incredible package of offerings that I can leverage from all those years inside of a brand synonymous with innovation that um, if it's an organization that wants to do innovation of their own sort, um, I'd love to be either a part of it or explore what it is that I might be able to contribute there.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I, it speaks to the idea of being confident in the value you do bring to the table and l- leveraging the experiences you've had to help others. Because I look at you and immediately I'm thinking, man, there's all these organizations right now trying to dabble in design thinking and in a product innovation and and it's really that they're just dabbling and so they're struggling with it. Whereas you have a background of really holistically approaching those things um, in a very committed and holistic way that is just a completely different approach that yields a completely different level of product. So, um, you know, things like that, even though maybe you've been in a place yeah, the same company for a long time, and that's not the norm now. There's also a lot of unique value that comes from that that people don't have or organizations don't have when they're just dabbling and going an inch deep <laughs> in areas yeah, that are very. Yeah. And, right.
1: and I, I think the other little aha over the course of you know the last few months is yeah, I'm looking at the job boards just to to see what's out there, and I'm finding that you know much like design thinking has over the last few years um the phrase or the word innovation is very overused yeah <laughs> and therefore watered <laughs> down and hard to hard to filter out and get into what is truly what is truly innovative from the standpoint of you know the the business dictionary defines it as Driving greater or different value from the resources and, and processes and and new ideas it's not just the new ideas they need to have some value there because that's what's going to keep the business going
0: yeah i love that well um cheering for you in your next endeavors Here at The Greenhouse Effect, we are big fans of our friends at Belay Solutions. They are a company that provides virtual assistants and bookkeepers and social media managers. We want to give you a taste of what it's like to work with Belay from one of their clients. His name is Dave Richards, the CEO and lead coach for Elite Performance Associates. Belay saved me When I was focused on growing my business, you know, I can think of recently, um, I was working with a high profile, uh,
1: you know, federal government agency on a conference for them. And it had a lot of moving parts. You know, my VA allowed me to confidently let go of all of those things and just focus solely on preparing content and delivering a high value program to the client. Belay follows up with me, how can I give more this constant prodding of, You know, how do you, how can we help you more? How can we pull more from your plate so that you can do, you know, what you're meant to do and what you're best
0: at? If you resonate with any of this and you want more information, we have partnered with Belay to offer $200 off of your startup costs. And if you want to learn more about that or have a free consultation with a member of the Belay team, just click the link in the show notes or go to belaysolutions.com backslash next step. Okay, so we need to do your book recommendation.
1: So so again, let, let me let me touch on serendipity here. Um, it was a year and a half ago that I was introduced to the book and it happened so innocently. I'd actually flown to New York to um, participate in a half-day workshop that one of Herman Miller's designers does as another one of her gigs and it's Design the Life You Design the Life You Love um, by Aisha Bursell. And I'm literally on my way back sitting at, Uh, the gate in newark looking across the aisle toward hudson news and i see on this rack of new releases when to jump and i see (laughs) the tagline below and i i forget what it is right now but i'm like i (laughs) i couldn't reach across the aisle (laughs) fast enough and run to run to tackling people to pay for it (laughs) because it's like man talk about a sign from the universe um and just really enjoyed that read profiling um profiling mike lewis's own career pivot to chase a dream that he always had but then you know the the sub supplement to that was putting together this book and really gathering the stories of 40 others um, who had made a career pivot, sometimes, yes, within their own existing organizations, and some entirely different, including a former Chicago Cup.
0: Oh, and why, <laughs> nice. Something else was drawing you across that aisle. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, When to Jump by Mike Lewis. We're going to have that link in the show notes as well as uh, some other things we've mentioned where you can check out Gretchen's work or just, you know, get more connected with her. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend. Don't forget to subscribe and come on, do us a favor leave a five star review. It'll help others find the show too.